especially in large organizations or any, it could be a small organization. There's a pecking order and there's politics. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the worthwhile conversation is, are you in a healthy relationship or are you in a toxic relationship? Right. A toxic relationship, the way I define it, is the more you invest in that relationship, the worse it seemingly gets. Mm -hmm. And the only person who's responsible for that result is you. A healthy relationship is one in which multiple, all parties take responsibility for the health of that relationship, um, where the more you invest in it, the, the better it gets. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy all the time. You might have to have really hard, vulnerable, transparent conversations, but the more you invest, the better it gets. Sometimes in our organizations, we need to be mindful of politics, but there's a fine line between it being toxic and being healthy. If you want to form bonds of trust and cooperation and gain from the innovation and creative ideas of your people, you need to create an environment in which people feel that it's safe and worth it to stick their hand up, stick their neck out and share ideas, concerns, disagreements, and even mistakes. All right, welcome to the studio shed. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure having you here because I think there's a lot that our audience is going to enjoy hearing about uh, your career history, but also how that's informed your maybe nuggets of wisdom that you share and help people kind of unveil from their own experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm really excited to hear uh, about this book you got coming up too. Thank you. Me too. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, because yes. it's still coming up, right? Well, people say I can't wait to read it, and I'm like, yeah, same here. Yeah, mm -hmm. after the 75th edit my editor wants me to do. Exactly. Uh, okay, so Shed. Yes. What do you do, man? What do I do? Uh, I mean, everything I do is to help people love their work and life more. Okay. So for me, it's about engaging with people in meaningful ways so that we connect with depth and live in a more fulfilled world. Shows up with writing, shows up with speaking, workshops, coaching, um, and really just trying to help people build deeper relationship with themselves, with the people around them, with the world around them, so that they experience more fulfillment. And where did this come from? Like, where did your personal in intent to encourage, you know, people's kind of relationships and communication to improve? Uh, pain. <laughs> it always starts It with always pain. starts with pain. How much time do you have? Oh, my God. So... A couple big influences. Um, one, I grew up with a stutter. Okay. Uh, married a speech pathologist. Good choice. More so for my kids. Was it me. your the speech pathologist that helped you as a no, kid? Because no. that would be just a, a romance story for Disney. Yeah, she's 25 years older than I am. No. <laughs> um, so I, I know what it feels like to be voiceless. Yeah. Um, the second sort of big influence was I went to biz school at Ivy down the street at, at Western University, had an amazing experience, experienced what I later would call fulfillment, right? The way I define fulfillment is when we use our strengths, of which we all have strengths, to contribute towards something bigger than ourselves and bigger than profit that we care about. Mm -hmm. And when we do those things, we feel fulfilled and we get into flow, right? Time stands still. Um, I got my first job out of biz school, and on my first day, a thousand people were let go post merger. What company was that? It was Petro Canada Suncor. Okay, so gas company for our non Canadian friends listening and watching. Yeah, that was at the time. Wait, are we talking about you're the same age as me? Maybe like two thousand nine. Okay, you're so younger than me. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, doesn't look it. I but was. I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, I I got recruited out of Ivy to Petrocan 
And it's not that I was passionate about the industry, but it was a leadership development program. And I'm like, yeah, leadership. Oh, that's interesting. So it was a rotational management thingy. Um, and I was hired, gosh, it would have been uh, around this time of year in 2008. Okay. And then I was starting the next year. Uh, and between my, in my pre-boarding, between when I signed the offer and when I joined, mm -hmm. merger happened with, uh, with Suncor. And on my first day, which was September, I think it was September 7th, 2009, a thousand people were let go. And, and these are people from the business unit. Like how, how, I guess, how did you interact with those people? To what, were they from across the organization? Across were these organization. people like in the office you walked into? Yeah, it impacted some as you well. You came in, they were literally walking out? Yeah, with boxes in hand. Crying. Yeah. Well, so I didn't get to form obviously meaningful relationships with the people walking out, but I saw the impact of that uncertainty um, on people who are still there. Well, also because like this is an energy company. Mm -hmm. Sure, there was an M&A or whatever going on. So there's going to be some collateral damage because of culture change or whatever. Sure. But or efficiencies and synergies was the official announcement. But that industry is one that that really is like a career track industry. So I would assume that it's, you know, those people walking out were really, really, really surprised. Yeah. I mean, it had been months leading up. The merger was announced, I think, in March of 2009. And so some, you know, five, six months later. Um, but yeah, I, I distinctively remember, because so often when we talk about layoffs, and there's a lot of layoffs happening now, especially in tech, mm -hmm. you know, we, we feel for the people who are impacted, but it's also the people who stay there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you're like, uh, you lost all your peeps. You lost all your peeps. There's still uncertainty, you know, and if it isn't managed well, it can cause a lot of harm. I mean, I've done work with a, with an airline mm -hmm. and there were employees still grieving and still nervous and having PTSD from layoffs that happened almost 30 years ago. Wow. Right. Because it was, it was mishandled. Yeah. Well, and, cultural legacy. Yeah. It sits in the subconscious of, of generations. I mean, this is the interesting thing, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and most organizations don't consider what that, you know, cultural legacy for the organization is ever. You know, brand is just something that you use to sell things. Yeah. Brand rather is, than... Brand is, is, is inside out. And, and so that would be a very interesting introduction to your career. Mm -hmm. How did that play out for you? So a couple things. So one, I just began to bear witness to the impact of that uncertainty, that turmoil, that lack of communication and even transparency, mm -hmm. because a lot of the senior leaders didn't know what the future held. And I just saw how, I mean, I, I distinctively remember one person who was a 37 year veteran of the, of the company who was in the cubicle next to me wow. and just her, her trepidation. I mean, she was waiting for her pink slip to come. And of course that affected her productivity, but it also mm -hmm. affected her mental and physical well-being. Um, and so I felt very blessed in a sense that I had such an odd experience on day one of my career, because A, I didn't have 37 years vested in, in this company. But did that relieve you, if that's the first day you walk in, does that relieve you of a sense of responsibility to commit to that position? You know, day one, fresh out of school, you're joining this company. Is this a sense of like, great, now there's more opportunity for me here? Or is it hmm. like... Uh, perhaps a little bit. Or is it like, okay, well, maybe the next thing's around the corner. I, I didn't join that job thinking that I'm 
going to be here for a short period of time. I thought I'd be there for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my first cousins worked at the company and been there for years. You know, I envisioned like this is the place I'm going to grow my my career. The thing that was interesting was the employee value proposition I was recruited on. Yeah, it was, was it was a cultivation program. You said right? Yeah, it was a leadership development rotational management thingy. Um, but the very nature of the organization changed from when I was recruited and signed and when I joined. Mm-hmm. And so it took about, I would say, five, six months for me to get to this point where this wasn't it for me. Mm. Not saying the company or the people or anything was bad or wrong. It wasn't the right fit for me. And that was really hard. Then I entered, like, I was totally lost. I was totally unmotivated. The first person I made wrong was me. Mm -hmm. Why am I not motivated? What's wrong with me? As opposed to, hold on a sec, like, perhaps why is this environment or why is this job or company maybe not for me. Um, yeah. How did you rationalize that ultimately? Uh, at first it was exceptionally hard. Again, I made myself the, the problem. I was depressed. I was not, I was not a good person to be around. Um, I was still, you know, a top performer Mm -hmm. in my performance evaluations, but I was, you know, lying, hiding, faking. Why do you think you had that expectation to kind of make good personally? Like, is this something you saw in your relationships otherwise? Say more about that. Why? What? Like, like why your upbringing. I... What, what do your parents do or did? My dad is a physician. My mom's an interior decorator. Ah, see the physicians. My wife's a physician. Yeah. They have a commitment to the profession that's a, sort of a, a difficult one yeah. to, to kind of parse out of your brain. Yeah. I mean, for me, and I'm working on this now around like my identity is so tied up to my work. Mm-hmm. And so for me my job wasn't just a three-letter word. Like it was, I put pressure on myself that my job had to be something that gave me pride and joy. You mm-hmm. know, that was the expectation. Now I'm good with that because I believe, I, I don't think our work should be 100% of our identity. I don't think that's healthy. And I think some of the shifts and trends that that we're seeing in work today, I think work should be additive to our lives, but mm-hmm. I don't think it should be the main or only thing in our lives. I think we ought to be defined by more than that. And of course you say work, but perhaps you mean job. Yeah. Yes. Because there can be work outside of job. Yeah. Or work done. I mean, this again, uh, something that uh, has come up in our, in our podcast so far mm-hmm. is talking about um, retain knowledge despite churn in organizations and how organizations are um, typically poor at knowledge basing. So, when organizations think of their staff as just human resources that are cogs in the wheel and can mm-hmm. be replaced out when they break, mm-hmm. uh, so much opportunity goes out of the window with those people. Yeah. Um, and then, so this is something that, that's kind of come up is, is this idea that the body of work that people uh, perform, create, contribute to at an organization, if it's not adequately, you know, archive celebrated, communicated internally, mm-hmm. you're losing a lot of ideation capital. Yeah, totally. Oh. Well, it's even, I, I chuckled at the, you know, when the people break, you know, so there, a, a good friend of mine is a retired Navy SEAL. Mm. Uh, Rich, Rich Devinney wrote a great book called The, called the Attributes around don't just hire people on skills, hire them on attributes, characteristics, right? You can put the most skilled person, but they may not be a right ad or fit to the team 100%. base, right? So Rich makes a distinguishment between leaders and drivers. 
So drivers view people as cogs in a machine. They fulfill a duty. Mm -hmm. Like if your brakes ran out on your bicycle or your car, do you mourn the loss of your brakes? No, you buy new brakes and you move on. Like that's just maintenance of the machine. That's how drivers view people. And though they may be able to get short-term driven results, it's at the expense of long-term health. Mm -hmm. um, and often drivers are typically narcissistic, believing mm -hmm. that their view is the right view, you know, very sort of impenetrable to other people's point of view. Leaders, on the other hand, view their teams and organizations of what it actually is, a living and breathing organism, mm -hmm. right? Um, our, our places of work, our organizations are not bricks and mortar or cloud. It's the, it's the human beings who go in and, 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 and contribute and make it what it is. And so I just find it interesting of when, you know, this notion of when people break, it's like, well, what's the responsibility of the leaders of the cultures of the environment of the system that cause people to break? Right. Timely discussion on that note, mm -hmm. given that the whole world, you know, at least in North America, the whole North American world, which is our myopic sense of the global context. Mm -hmm. Um, here in, in Canada and the U.S. with this kind of, you know, let's say rapid adoption in the last couple, three years of distributed work and remote work, mm -hmm. uh, the sudden kind of shift into people working from home, uh, but connected over the internet, um, and not having a central place to meet and to socialize and to like get to know each other. Yeah. This is becoming a massive topic now, mm -hmm. which is like employee burnout, uh, companies kind of having no clue how to support. And I think kind of like, it's a bit of a, a catch-all and a, and a, I don't know the other kind of phrase for this, but it's, it's kind of a little silly. I think the way that very easily uh, companies are quickly saying, oh, mental health, mental health, mental health. Yeah. And it's like, we signed you up for benefits. You could talk to a therapist to fix yourself in your own time outside of your job, but do your job. Yeah. And it's like, well, maybe I just need someone to talk to. You know? Yeah. I mean, we, we are a social animal. Yeah. We need community. So I've worked distributed and for remote teams for the vast majority of my career. Okay. So then what happened after the uh, gas company? So I did a, a stint at, at Petrocan Suncor. I was fired on my one year anniversary. Muzzle. Uh, thank you. Wow. Uh, I you was made a, it a year. I made it a year. Uh, I was a top performer, but I was mentoring a number of interns who turned down full-time job opportunities, citing conversations with this guy. So that's a great way to be a wow. rebel with a cause. Yeah. Little, little cancerous inside of a uh, potentially not, not the, uh, the most perfect culture. But anyway, I went from that. I really knew what I wanted to do, which was, I, I felt unmotivated, uninspired, disengaged. I wanted to feel the opposite. And somehow probably cause I'm human, mm -hmm. I figured the greatest way to feel that way was to help others feel that way. So I knew I wanted to make my work that, um, I I was I was a little bit too young though. I didn't have enough experience to figure least. out how to do that. Figure out how to do it, or did, you know, I was mo I was both qualified because of my experience and passions, but not qualified because I was a year into my career. And what, what did I know? You know, mm. um, I did a quick stint at Ernst and Young doing change management consulting, which was great learning because mm -hmm. um, you had a year of experience. Yeah. Exactly, and now I can consult. Uh, but it was it was a really good learning on on just. I learned how to make a good PowerPoint slide. Um, years later in my work with Simon Sinek, I actually worked in a partnership with Ernst & Young, so that was good fun. Full circle. When I joined the Simon Sinek team, I'd been on the Simon Sinek team, I'd still con contribute there, 
been on that team for more than a decade. Sounds like a uh, sounds like a real estate brokerage when you say it that way. The Simon Sinek team. Yes. And we'll get to that. Or <laughs> Esquire. Maybe, maybe we'll jump to that now. Yeah. Well, how, no. How, so what was the path that led you to working with Simon Sinek, I guess? I was introduced to um, a great uh, person who quickly became a mentor, a guy by the name of James Powell. Mm-hmm. And I was working at the oil and gas company, and I said to him, I'm moving into a marketing role, and I'm afraid to do marketing for an organization where I don't believe what they sell or, or, or how they sell it. And he said, well, watch this video. And he sent me Simon Sinek's Golden Circle TED Talk, How Great Leaders Inspire Action. Um, and I watched, I remember I procrastinated for three months and then watched that video. Uh, and like I, you were afraid of watching it? I just... Oh, you mean I you just, forgot about it? it? It landed in my email inbox and I just didn't do anything about it for, yeah. you know, three months. And then I watched it and went like, huh, oh, that's good. Uh, I went to hear Malcolm Gladwell speak at an Art of conference here in uh, in Toronto, Art of Management, in November of 2009, I guess. Okay. And Simon spoke just before Malcolm Gladwell, and it's like I had met my order. Mm. Um, I was already drawing golden circles on napkins and explaining it, explaining you know the concept of why, why, how, what uh, to anyone who would listen. And right time, right place. So I heard Simon speak, bumped into him in, into the hall in the hall at the Toronto Metro the Metro Toronto Convention Center. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, built some relationships. So it's a big event with lots of people lots floating of people. around. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you're up there with your pad of paper, and you're saying, "Simon, sign this, sign this. I want your <laughs> autograph." How uh, how did you get his attention, and like, what did you guys talk about? Do you remember? I asked a question during Q and A. A guy by the name of Ron Tite, who's a yeah, I know now. Ron yeah. Tite. Ron's awesome. So Ron, was... for anyone that doesn't know Ron Tite, Ron Tite is like Ari Gold. <laughs> yeah. In terms of his energy and look. his height, his aesthetic, uh, and he's he's a super super smart marketer. Yeah. Jeremy Piven, look yeah. like Canadian Jeremy Piven. There you go. Uh, so Ron was emceeing. I asked Simon a question around authenticity. I forget the particulars. Uh, but I had a chance in a sea of 1,500 people to ask Simon a question, and he answered it. Mm-hmm. And then I bumped into him into the hall randomly, um, sent him a note on LinkedIn saying, really enjoyed your talk. I'm going to read your book now. He wrote back to that message. I later managed the team who responded to those messages years, hmm. years later. Um, and one thing led, led to the another. I mean, I was young. I was mid-20s. But I had found someone who was helping to advance the world I wanted to live in, a more inspired, safe, and fulfilled world. And I got lucky, right time, right place, right people. Joined Simon's team as the fourth person to join that team um, and contributed there for a good, gosh, 10 years. So what does the Simon Sinek team do? What does Simon do for a living? Aside from, you know, inspire people through talks. Or is that it? There's, yeah, I mean, there's... Not that that's it, but like, that's a lot of things. So there's... Obviously, I mean, there's Simon's activities, which is keynotes and online courses and advising and consulting. And then there's a team of speakers and facilitators. Uh, They have uh, a meaningful online business now as well, both um, Simon's ideas from people like myself and others who share his work, Mm -hmm. as well as other people on on that platform as well. Um, But the the interesting piece as well is the fact that that team has been remote. Mm. So I've worked from home or on the road, but being part of a distributed remote team. 
And how did that work for you guys over that decade in terms of the tools that you use to stay in communication mm -hmm. as well as, let's call it like IRL touch points? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we use all the same tools, the Slacks and the Mondays and the Zooms and the, and the Skypes. We used to use Skype. Yeah. Um, uh, remember does that. it exist anymore? It still does. Yeah. Is it okay? Yeah, it's a good way to make really crazy in international calls. You buy some Skype credits and you can call. Oh, I used to love it. Nice to have Skype. Uh, I forget what they called it, but I had a number of of different international destination numbers, mm -hmm. and I had that not you know like being a cheeky consultant who would say I have an office in the UK <laughs> and an office in Zimbabwe, um, but instead to make local callers in those regions where we had clients when yeah. I was running my agency called Design Guru like a long time ago. Um, yeah, people could call and not have to pay money to call me. Yeah, so, nice. Yeah, Skype. Yeah, but I think, I mean, you know, uh, you can, technology and connecting in a, in a virtual remote world, it's good for a few things. It's good for um, speed of transaction and ease of, of, of access. Mm-hmm. Right, it's good for in information. There's data at our fingertips, whether it's true or not, um, and it's good for connecting, but it's not great for building relationship. It's good for connecting, but not good for building relationships. So, so what what do you mean by connecting? Meaning, you and I could have this conversation, and I could be in Australia right now. Except, it, it, what, <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> So it's good at forming connections, but right. it's not as good as... You mean that people who otherwise through, you know, for... Yeah, as an alternative to physical, like IRL, global, flying around the world stuff, yeah. the immediacy of how people can get together mm -hmm. is valuable. Yeah, and I mean, I think we saw something really interesting that when everyone went, or not everyone, but a lot of people went from being in office to then going home and, and working from home, mm -hmm. we got more of a sense of their real life in many instances. That's a weird thing. I always, I keep finding it strange. Yeah, um, I mean, you see people's cats and dogs and children in beds. Like the bed thing is very strange to mm -hmm. me for so many reasons. Like sociologists will be picking this apart for decades. Yeah. This era of like. We've never met, but I've seen where they sleep. Yeah. And for the most part, what does that say about you? And then how constructed do people's like backgrounds become? And then what does that mean if they blur their background? And yeah. are you allowed to ask them as I do? Because, you know, I try and be filterless. Mm -hmm. Why do you have a background on? Turn that off, man. I want to see where you are, man. Let's see. Yeah. Oh, I can't turn it off. Now, that's an odd situation. No, no, take your mouse, click here. <laughs> no, no, and it's not a technicality. It's like people have their backups because they're online on these calls so much. Mm -hmm. A lot of people I speak with, and I rarely will do video calls. And if I do, I mean, I often will do it in a studio like this. So perhaps there's a bit of an ego thing where people feel a little self-conscious because they've got you know their kids' toys in the background or a dog you know sitting behind them or whatever. Yeah. But it is a very interesting thing um, that keeps coming up, which is this perspective amongst team members uh, that has been unveiled in the last few years, mm -hmm. which is a very personal perspective on on their team members' lives. But yet the means of communication is almost like a barrier because, yes, we connect, but we can't develop a relationship over these staccato conversations where I'm looking at you face on, yeah. you know. I mean, so I have a small team now and I have... One uh, one person who's my business partner, head of operations, named Alejandro. He's currently in Chile, mm. and we've never met in the flesh, 
but we have a close relationship. Right. Now, now right. it's it's heightened, right, when we're in person. So, I mean, there are certain things that I think heighten relationship, and one of those is serendipity, mm-hmm. right? So we break from from this conversation. We go into the next room, and there's a there's a pastry table, and there's one cranberry muffin sitting there, and we both go to reach the cranberry muffin. And I'm like, you like cranberry muffins? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I love cranberry muffins. I'm like, me too. The antioxidants, you know, the perfect level of, of tart and sweet, you know. We bond over antioxidants, right? Now we're in a meeting five years from now, a contentious client conversation. We're hitting our heads against the wall. It's not going well. And there's this moment of pause and I go, gosh, I could really go for a cranberry muffin right now, right? And it goes back to that moment five years ago where we both went to grab the same Mm -hmm. thing. That's serendipity, that's building relationship. And so I think even if we are working primarily over video sync and 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 async we still need to build these moments of relationship and serendipity where we're not just working mm-hmm. and when we can get together in person it's really important and getting together in person i think we need to build just a relationship building component not getting together just to do more of the same work but to have experiences and get to know one another i think that's the key word the experiences yeah um it's a it's a word that has been difficult for marketers to capitalize on from my vantage okay uh you know the most obvious one of course being being today uh being airbnb where they've tried to productize the word um as the non alternative to a hotel room so everything that they're trying to kind of like sell, mm-hmm. uh, it started from from what I've seen uh, at that company as a means of promoting um, the destination and promoting it kind of like enticing the customer base to book in particular places because if they could package you know experiences uh, with those places and recommend essentially activities, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't really about the experience doing the activity that Airbnb sells. They're just using that word because it sounds great, mm-hmm. but they're selling access to activities uh, to, to take, whether it's like rent a bike and go for a tour of Copenhagen while you're staying at this Airbnb mm-hmm. or or um, whatever. doesn't matter. <laughs> but the word, I think, yes. is enticing to marketers because it connects with uh, all people. Sure. It's, it's a very... Um, I don't know how to explain this clearly, but from my vantage, and especially here at Startwell and the work that we do, when when people come together, I, I see it like this. People come together for meetings uh, of whatever reason and functional output expectation. Um, but when they come together and they have that guard that they might have mm-hmm. in common you know, corporate contexts shedded because they're in a comfortable environment. Yeah. And they actually humanize that interaction and you see emotions at work, mm-hmm. laughter, joy, joy, frustration, reaching for those cranberry muffins. Yeah. Um, I think then they share an experience, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then that's something that builds relationships. Yeah. So how, I guess this IRL thing, I mean, when you guys were working remotely for, for that decade, mm-hmm. uh, how was that facilitated? I mean, we prioritize relationship. We knew that relationship was a foundation of accomplishment, and so we prioritized it. We would have calls devoted to building relationship. Um, it wasn't just calls only to focus on work. Um, 
But you did know? you fly down to England and stuff often, or is it? Where's the core of the team? If it was New York. It's now York. LA. Um, there's yeah. I mean, it's there's some people in in, in the UK as well. It, you know, pre-COVID, we would make it a priority to have a full company retreat, mm -hmm. hopefully once a year. Right. And also, I mean, part of the business model was travel for client work. And so we would just find opportunity for people who would be in the same areas to get together as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, through the pandemic, when traveling wasn't a thing, uh, it's still possible to form connection and relationship over Zoom and Slacks and all the things. You just have to work a bit harder at it. You have, oh, to, yeah. you have to be intentional at it. it. That's exactly the word, yeah. You have to be intentional. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because if you have a functional kind of call about a particular problem that you're solving or something, and then you kind of like want to sidebar, people are like, no, no, now we need to work on this thing. I don't want to change mental focus. I don't want to tell you about my weekend. Yeah. My weekend doesn't matter. <laughs> we have to meet our quota. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes the weekend does matter because it helps you meet the, meet the, meet the quota. Okay. So that's another topic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This kind of like work-life balance question. Yeah, I like to call it work-life harmony or work-life in integration. It's not a, it's not a balance. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a harmony. It's a weave. I think one of the things that's really good about distributed work is it's far easier to be like, oh, I got to take the kids for the, for an appointment. I'm going to be offline for ninety minutes, right? As opposed to like, I'm not anti-office. I'm not anti-getting together in person. But I'm also pro <laughs> what's Lifestyle. the design, what's the intent, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not for mandates. Um, By mandates, you mean like return to work? And you must be in the office right. four days a week, three days a week. It's like, you know, really? Um, I think if you're, you know, the, the nature of your work, I think, should dictate where it takes place. Mm -hmm. Which means if you're a leader of people whose work dictates that they're you know, in an office or in a factory or whatever it might be, you should be there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but yeah, I think it's doing wonders for work-life integration for us to have the flexibility to work from where we can and where we need. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny that this topic has been raised only in the last few years. And also, sitting here in Toronto, we have a very unique kind of perhaps predominantly nine-to-five culture that's existed, you know, anglophonic uh, heritage perhaps framing it and mm -hmm. contextualizing it in this city mm -hmm. um, to the point where when I moved here 2005 from New York, I was very surprised to see that like a majority of playgrounds in the city were technically closed to the public. Like you weren't supposed to play in them on Sundays, hmm. even as recent as that. Hmm. And then LCBOs, right? So you couldn't buy liquor uh, except for like two locations in downtown Toronto. Is that right? Uh, in 2005. I obviously don't buy enough liquor. <laughs> I love liquor on Sunday. But now it's open. But for, now everything For those is outside open. of yeah. Ontario, the LCBO is our local booze shop. Exactly. Exactly. The lar second largest or largest, perhaps, global single buyer of alcohol in the world mm. because it's a centralized uh, buying distribution system for the province, for sure. Cool. Um but yeah, so we've we've our city has changed quite a bit, and it's becoming more funky, and it's certainly a, a diverse uh, population that we have living downtown and working downtown. Mm -hmm. So we hope that uh, that liberalization kind of always continues to expand. 
But it's interesting for me to just say that kind of like cultural heritage of office culture mm-hmm. um, that maybe got strengthened through the really the 50s to the 70s, 80s in yeah. this city. Yeah. Um, always meant for me as someone who moved to the city by choice um, and didn't grow up here always meant for me that like the fringes of the financial core were more interesting to me from a pedestrian reality, Mm -hmm. you know, and the financial core itself was culturally bereft. It was simply in this city and for anyone outside of Toronto listening or watching, um, you know, the, the kind of like structure, the urban topography of Toronto is, is interesting because we've got this like financial core that is connected to the transit links so that all of the workers who are in office cubicles you know, can find their way to the honeycomb uh, through defined paths. Mm-hmm. But our transit doesn't permeate throughout the greater mm-hmm. Toronto area with the same kind of access. So, as like a New York, as an example. Yeah, as New York, as London, even, yeah. as any kind of other great city that has this many people in I'm it. Sure, Tokyo, I've never been, but I can imagine. Yeah. So it's interesting because it's, it's like downtown was destination. Um, I guess its purpose as a workplace destination was a predominant function that, that, you know, for the greater city. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the interesting about that, I think is that because of that, it hasn't, it's a very difficult thing to repurpose. Um, yeah. So it's tough for Torontonians to kind of like stake claim to the core and I've been having a lot of talks with people in commercial real estate about this where rather than trying to multi-purpose you know financial core office towers that are now 40% empty mm-hmm. um, because also they're owned predominantly by REITs large slow um, you know investment vehicles for pension funds um, and some of Canada's pension funds are like the largest in the world right mm-hmm. like teachers and, and other ones um, those assets if they get repurposed are being like rebuilt to multi-use where they're putting in commercial they're like knocked down there's a few projects where they're knocking down like a 20 30 story building um replacing its office square footage with a redeveloped project but adding to that some residential and then some sort of like fun retail thing so it's like office retail and residential in one redevelopment Mm. but how that space gets used is still always going to be left up to the quote unquote tenant. So encouraging interaction with the ownership and use of space in this city Mm -hmm. is biased towards office usage Mm -hmm. um, and otherwise the private sector paying money to experiment on that innovation. Mm -hmm. Landowners, landlords are not doing that. So I find that very, very interesting because what it means when you look at the macro picture of work in Toronto mm-hmm. is that, you know, everything skews towards being in the office or being out of the office. The in-between space isn't naturally provided by our topography, mm-hmm. nor is it encouraged by the purveyors of space. So, of course, I sit, I'm saying this because I sit in the middle and I'm, I'm providing you know, 20,000 square feet of creative and innovative and collaborative space for people. Mm-hmm. Um which is an expensive proposition, especially when you're pushing, you know, the rock up the hill mm-hmm. uh, for the people down below who uh, who will run out of the way when it rolls down. Yeah, but you're, you're, I mean, I'm picturing the downtown core right now and it's all office buildings that to your point, 
occupancy, like what's going to be done with that space. There needs to be more creative, whether it's meeting, leisure, social, living, retail. Given the connections to it, like the transit links, mm-hmm. like, okay, so the majority of, of critique I hear of this return to work problem problem yeah as some people will call it you know mm-hmm. like the banks maybe not so much the banks in which Canada, I, I hate calling it return to work because we've all been working yeah return to the office yeah like i guess this, this big question that uh we hear from a lot of people um that are responsible for teams within large organizations corporate bodies downtown that have 20 30 40 50 100 200 000 square feet mm-hmm. they're really kind of trying to figure out how to entice people to make the journey downtown and coming up against internal backlash, you know, in their corporations about to what degree can they outlay budget for repurposing space? Um, and yet, you know, we mentioned a mutual uh, contact friend is Dave Cairns, right, mm-hmm. from CBRE, who was on this podcast just the other day. Uh, and we were postulating about how companies can provide an urban experience for their suburban workers that kind of rebuilds a vision of what their expectations are for the city anyway Mm -hmm. you know and i think that that's like that's kind of an interesting problem that a lot of tech companies for the most part because you know maybe the margins allowed for it but like companies like google have been kind of doing that yeah with mixed intent it's Mm -hmm. more like captivate your worker so that they're more engaged with the workplace to increase productivity increase emotional connection to the company um and, and really make their whole life flow. So there's, there's two sides of this coin. One is about encouraging, um, you know, people's lifestyles to flourish and include work in that. Yep. And then the other side of it is make your whole lifestyle about work and like brand your employees. And, uh, and that's, that's really what we don't want, I think. But Yeah. I mean, you look at, so, so I think if, I, I think, you know, what do people want? Mm-hmm. People want to be paid fairly. They want to be treated as human beings and they want choice and flexibility. And so I think to say, you must come into the office every single day, eight to six and sit on Zoom meetings. It's like, what? Yeah, if you're coming to the office to replace, to do your work the same way you would do it in a more comfortable environment. Unless people choose because their home environment whether it's with children or they live in a shoebox downtown and they want to get out. Mm-hmm. But there's also more people who are who are moving away from downtown for cost and lifestyle, being closer to nature. And so I think, you know, to have people to come in, it needs to be for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's right to bring people in just so they can sit on a Zoom meeting with people next to them in the same Zoom meeting. Like, that's idiotic. Taking a step back even further, uh, what are your thoughts on how uh, societies can provide third spaces? Uh, say more. I mean, I think yes, but what? Like, tell me more about your view. I'm sure we'll yeah. Align. T- talking about um, talking about the kind of like office focused culture mm-hmm. of workers, office workers or white collar workers in uh, in Toronto. Yeah. Um, you know, and and this this kind of dichotomy between home versus office. Um, in the last, really, in the in the period of secularization, maybe the last generation, we've seen uh, a kind of an overfocus on the work environment mm-hmm. to replace perhaps time and space in people's daily lives. So, of course, this has loaded 
the experience, it sounds like from other guests that I've been talking to, it's loaded the experience and the responsibilities of someone at home working um, because now everything is home. Mm -hmm. So certainly that's, you know, that's tough to deal with. But I wonder about whether we can revive our libraries and our community centers um, and these sorts of publicly provided spaces yeah. to make them more attractive to people to not only take breaks from home and from work, but uh, possibly to become supportive of, of work being done at them. Yeah. And I think both from a public space, province, city, municipality, you know, whatever it might be, mm -hmm. as well as private space. I mean, my meeting before here, I met a friend at a coffee shop where people were meeting, people were working. It's also a grocery shop. It's also a dry cleaner, you know. Um, Creed's? Yeah. Creed's at the new location. Yeah, DuPont. That's actually an interesting company to spend a moment on. I don't know too much about it. I know there was some recent uh, publicity I don't know about. Okay, so you mentioned one of the things that Space does. Can we run through the list again? Uh, from what I saw, there was some, it looked like some high-end grocery. Mm -hmm. It looked like there was definitely a dry cleaner. Mm -hmm. There was okay, so that's meeting space and co-working space. So I'll stop you on the dry cleaner. So the history of that company is that it was uh, a man with the last name of Creed. Mm -hmm. uh, Who was there this morning? One of the family. Yeah. So years and years ago, I, as far as I know it, in the 20s or 30s, uh, there was, you know, the the importance of dry cleaning for people who didn't have laundries at home yeah. was really high, yeah. especially office workers. Mm. Creed's um, was the city's best uh, luxury dry cleaner. And one of the reasons why they were luxury, a capital L, was that they also provided cold storage for furs, mm. from what I understand. Mm -hmm. So uh, they geographically were located right next to Forest Hill, close to Rosedale, affluent neighborhoods in Toronto, mm -hmm. and, uh, and became this epicenter of, uh, of kind of care for... Uh, clothes that were required to establish status in society and maintain a presence at, at work, right? Mm. Very important to the culture at the time. And that's kind of some of the backstory to how, uh, as they shed um, a kind of a need for real estate with the cold storage of furs, uh, they've turned a lot of that into kind of shared space at their yeah, old well, location. Where, where do you put your furs? <laughs> <laughs> I put them on animals. I leave them on animals. Yeah, good, That's what I do. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's kind of an interesting, that, that's one of these rare Toronto businesses that's ca been carried on. And it's cool that you went to the new location because that historic location, I, I don't know what their plans are for, I think is getting redeveloped into condos. Yeah. But uh, but they've just moved into this new development down the road. Yeah. And they took a retail space in, in this condo development. Um, and yeah, for a while, I think that coffee function, like Creed's became known as a coffee shop and it was, it was a brilliant idea that like in the back, they kept the dry cleaning desk. You drop your dry cleaning and you have a coffee and, yeah. and it's a community center. Yeah, absolutely. Totally a community center. And so I think you're right. Like private sector led initiatives to provide that function. Which is always going to be the most nimble and quick is private. Mm -hmm. Always. I think. Yeah, and certainly there's an opportunity in the next, I think, just a short term, in the next few years with the recession, with the availability of real estate uh, for people who want to, you know, experiment in these business models um, to get real estate at a cheaper price to be able to try those things. Mm. We're locked in a rates here, unfortunately, that are pre-pandemic, so that's not changing our game. But um, Wish I could help you there. <laughs> 
But let's go back to this idea of kind of like, uh, you know, and I think that ties into what I understand to be the topic matter of your book, Mm -hmm. but how corporate culture can evolve Mm -hmm. and how, I guess I'm going to leave it there. Okay. How can corporate culture evolve uh, for the better and what opportunities are there today for that to be catalyzed? So I think of culture in an equation. Okay. So for me, culture equals in brackets values multiplied by behavior to the power of influence. Say that again. Culture equals values multiplied by behavior to the power of influence. Okay. I I shall explain. <laughs> Elucidate. So, so um, the strength of your culture is the degree to which your values are behaved. Your values are lived. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of values. You can call them guiding principles. You can call them ethos, whatever you want to call them. But here are some things that are the way that we behave mm-hmm. here. Uh, my family, we have our own little uh, organization, our own culture. And we, my wife and I, talk about and attempt to embody values that we have described as treat every human being, treat every person as the human being that, that, that they are. Treat right. people with respect. Yeah. We also talk about how we can talk about our emotions, especially the hard ones. Those are like the two main pillars that really define and that my wife and I like really connect on and that we try to embody to our kids. Mm-hmm. Now, what if a guest's a guest comes into my home uh, and they're a prospective client, invite them over for for dinner. And if this dinner goes well, there's going to be another zero or two in my bank account, right? Mm -hmm. And this person treats my wife or children with disrespect. What do I do? Do I tolerate it? Or do I uh, have the hard intervention to say to this potential client, that's not the way that we treat each other here. Mm -hmm. Either clean it up or get out, uh, which might cost me business. But if I don't do that, I'm actually putting money ahead of my values, not a very strong culture. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, Enron had values. I believe they were uh, respect, communication, um, integrity, which is hilarious, and excellence. Um, excellence is my favorite, least favorite value because it means nothing. Like, do me a favor, Kasim, like more excellence this, this afternoon, please. I'll be 20% more excellent today. Yes, yes. So I'm a big fan of values articulated as verbs or action phrases because we're more likely to live them. Yeah. So let's take Enron's values. Respect, treat people like the human beings they are. Um, com- communication, ensure that you communicate your ideas in which, they're, in which they're heard or understood and you listen and hear understand others. Mm-hmm. Um, excellence, do more of your best work. Integrity, um, say and do the right thing, especially when it's hard, especially when no one's looking. Integrity is interesting because right is very subjective. What's right to a Boy Scout group is very different than what's right to ISIS, as an example. Both in integrity, mm-hmm. but very different. So we ought to have clarity of our values. Then we have to behave those values. You can say that you value collaboration. You've made a space devoted to collaboration, but I'll only see it through your actual behavior. Are you collaborative? Actions speak louder than words. There you go. Um, And then the kicker is the more influence one has in a culture, Mm -hmm. in a society, the more their values individually and their behavior amplifies. Because if I'm a junior new hire and I don't live the values of, of, of the organization, not, not a big deal. But if a senior leader doesn't live it, that's a huge deal. Yeah, and, and I think there's also that kind of like question, it's, it's changing a lot these days, but how leaders are more visible thanks to social media, thanks to the ability to share voices 
with digital media in general. Mm -hmm. So that's a very poignant uh, kind of reference is that cultural values, if not put into action, also in front of the people that they are shared with, yeah, you know, uh, don't translate as effectively. Yes, and I use the word influence on purpose because it's not necessarily title or authority. Mm. So I've been in roles in organizations where I didn't have title, but I had influence by the, by the role that I was in. I didn't have authority, but I had close relationship and could influence people who had authority. I got fired for that once. <laughs> Go on. That should be a whole podcast series is I got fired for that once. <laughs> That'll be, that's what it's called. And it's all about this. It's about power <laughs> dynamics. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because if you have influence, like I, I, when I was running IBM's startup program, which is this fledgling program that culturally IBM didn't really support startups because it's a sales organization primarily. And mm -hmm. the sales force saw uh, any freebies given to any potential clients, because anyone who's not a client is a potential client mm -hmm. to IBM salespeople, mm -hmm. uh, the blue coats, the the startups were seen as kind of like in our program that gave free stuff to startups was seen as cannibalistic mm -hmm. by the organization at large. And so our program was seen as a cancer and it was, uh, it wasn't something that was in, you know, the, the organization wanted to support. Um, so kind of like turned all of the people who worked globally on this program to support startups mm -hmm. into criminals. Yep. And we had targets on our backs. And when I was called into this like middle level, you know, manager who somehow I think had the title of like leading cloud in Canada, which was a much larger title than, I don't know, at the time IBM didn't even know what cloud was. So they just gave it to him at some point. He, he got downranked after, uh, after he fired me apparently. But yeah, the reasons that, that he cited for, for letting me go from IBM were extremely personal. Hmm. And they all spoke to his fear of my influence within the organization and on behalf of the organization in the community that I worked, yeah. the startup community. Yeah. And it was crazy because the officially the organization didn't share that perspective with this particular person because yep. on the documentation for, you know, whatever, canceling my contract, um, that was not written of course mm -hmm. there's no liability on paper mm -hmm. but that's a whole nother thing is, is is about procedure of of kind of like bringing people on and letting them go and how inauthenticity you know is often related i think to this this issue of, of kind of influence yeah but it's also you're also speaking to leading change and innovation inside of these very old big titanic type organizations, which is possible, mm -hmm. but you need to do it with appropriate protection. Mm -hmm. So I once worked with a, a regional leader for a medical device sales company, mm -hmm. and a fairly young VP was handpicked and brought in. And the most senior leader, I think president, said, experiment. We know things need to change. We don't know how. We think you have a better idea of how they should change than we do. Go. Hmm. And you have That's runway amazing. and like make it happen. And it was almost like this mini like hack. <laughs> it was like a, it was an elongated hackathon. Yeah. But they were given free reign. I went and spoke at uh, their sort of annual leadership conference 
It was about a 250-person organization. Okay. About 200 of them were salespeople, maybe 175, and then the rest were um, accounting, admin, support, mm -hmm. not salespeople. Uh, the first year, he had to, for political reasons, invite the top performers from sales metrics and volumes. But in his set in and in his first year at that conference, this VP laid out his vision, spoke about purpose, spoke about people, spoke about how we're all equals. We're not going to put. Uh, you know, salespeople on a pedestal just because they bring in all the money. It's the accounting and the admin and the ops that helps help support it. Mm -hmm. And the pervasive message from these top performers were, stop wasting my time, let me run my business and leave me alone. Right. And he went, great. And so next year when it was time for the leadership conference, he only invited the people who were contributing toward culture, regardless of their sales numbers. Mm -hmm. And when they didn't invite the top performers as, as traditional metric, uh, he all got phone calls from these people. Why am I not being invited to the leadership conference? And he said, oh, we're just going to talk about more of this stuff about how we're putting equality, people, and purpose first. Like all the stuff that you said you didn't want to be a part of, right? Now they were clampering to be there. Right. Again, fur and, and garments and, and status from our previous conversation yeah, yeah. With, with a dry cleaner. They wanted to be there, but he was putting the people there who were behaving the way that he wanted to incentivize that behavior. Mm -hmm. So that's a way that you can actually create culture change. And in the circumstance you're describing is you were given an agenda, but it wasn't made public. It was viewed as a threat as opposed to someone, a senior leader, someone with influence saying, this is the way of the future. It's going to be scary. Mm -hmm. If you have questions, come to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's super interesting because there's a lot of miscommunication assumption and uh, and lack of communication in these super large organizations. Like IBM is what four hundred thousand people globally or something, mm -hmm. and um, and then you know there's power dynamics, of course, that come into play with this or to to re deeply related to this lack of communication internally. Where I had a direct line of communication with like third to the CEO. Right, who was giving me these like unofficial mandates to do cool stuff? Yeah, and we were the very fact that we had an open line of communication when it got kind of like discovered, because apparently that's something is like, is you know something that that wasn't allowed uh, by my immediate report. You know, people got scared that like their positions in the various rungs of the ladder between us were getting threatened, and I had found a track to like upgrade my position and status yeah. within the organization. Mm. Whereas for me as a, as a kind of like former CEO entrepreneur in this corporate reality, yeah. uh, I didn't think anything about this. I'm, I was not biased to the political shank machine. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it was a really interesting scenario where uh, I was working on some great projects to take, you know, a, a much further step for IBM to support startups in um, the Middle East and Africa and uh, was actually discuss discussing fact going on a fact-finding mission to uh, uh, to tour the region uh, and to establish offices for for IBM to support startups in that region so a pretty big step forward for this massive organization yeah uh, when yeah again when that kind of trickled down to my direct report there was uh, there was a panic response. And because he felt he would have to explain to the various levels of management above him and below who I was talking to about what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so that kind of like, you know, 
culture is is corrosive at odds with what I'm sure IBM's values are printed on some piece of paper somewhere. Sure. Um, yep. And so communicating these these kind of cultural values, uh, and then also encouraging that action at all levels of an organization is mm-hmm. extremely important. Yep. Totally. Both rewarding and recognizing when it happens because. In our cultures, we get the behavior we reward and we get the behavior that we tolerate. Tolerating is a form of reward as well. And then when people live outside of those values, that's first and foremost time for feedback, mm-hmm. uh, coaching, support, or discipline if, if necessary. You know, And if someone, regardless of their performance, continues to live outside of the values, offer them to the competition. Mm-hmm. That's a great way of phrasing it. Offer them to the competition. Mm-hmm. So, tell me about this book that you've uh, you've been writing. Yes, uh, speak up culture. When leaders truly listen, people step up. And so, for me, it's all around you know what is a speak up culture? Why is a speak up culture good for business? And how do we venture to create one? So, what is a speak up culture? A speak up culture is an environment in which people feel that it is safe and worth it to share their ideas, even if they're half baked. Mm-hmm. to share their concerns, even if they're unpopular or personal, to disagree, especially with people more senior to them, mm-hmm. uh, and to admit mistake, uh, believing it will lead to improvement as opposed to being ignored or being punished. And see, that's exactly what we're talking about, this idea of collapsing hierarchies and power dynamics mm-hmm. by encouraging uh, dialogue and encouraging communication. And we, we are a hierarchical species. Like, that's normal but we take cues from the behaviors of those leaders. So I'll give you a fun little example of this. Mm-hmm. I once did a gig for, and by gig, I mean a keynote, sure. uh, a talk, yeah. uh, for an organization who employs about 20,000 people, and they help keep uh, a country in this world safer. Okay. Say that. Uh, I had the pre-engagement call with this senior leader who is the executive sponsor of this event. We had a pre-engagement call, um, and he was lovely. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed him. Uh, we listened to the same podcasts. Uh, he he described that his wife listens to the same podcast, too. I'm like, I really like this guy. Sure. Uh, as I often like to do, I show up early. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a virtual event, so I logged on early, and I had a chance to hear some of the end of his open uh, of his opening uh, remarks. They were fine, you know. Oftentimes, when uh, the people speak before me who are internal to the to the company, it's you know status updates and numbers, so it's pretty dry, which is great for me. Yeah. Um, and then he opened up to an open Q and A. The event was for all fifteen hundred managers within this organization. The second question that came during the Q and A was anonymously asked. Um, by someone saying, what is being done to address the continued issue of manager and employee burnout? It's a good question. Very good one, yeah. And this senior executive said, well, we implemented this, this, and that um, solution. We've had these findings in June. I think I don't think it's an issue. Next question. Hmm. And I went, oh. He's like, we're dealing with it. It's cool. Not even we're dealing with it. It's been dealt with. Oh. And I'm like, no, man, like you just lost it. Right. Which is, you can say, thank you for the question. Quite frankly, I'm disappointed that you had to ask it because we have done this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. These are these are the results that we've seen. But the very mere fact that you've had to ask this question and that if you are asking it, I'm sure many others are feeling it and asking it too, I regret to inform you that our work is yet to be done. 
Exactly. And there's more of that I and we, though it pains me, though I don't, I wish this weren't the reality, the mere fact that you've, that you've had to ask this question mean, means it still is. The next time we gather in said months, I really hope, and it is my commitment to you that you don't need to ask this question, mm -hmm. but if you do need to ask this question again, please keep it coming. That's the answer. And so by the mere fact that he made the question incorrect, invalid, the wrong question, he inadvertently kind of gaslit a significant percentage of the organization, mm -hmm. not his intention, but there's a difference between the behaviors of a leader and the, the, the impact, uh, right? But leaders own their impact, even if it's unintended. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a tough situation because I think there's this like legacy col corporate culture. This is something I saw at IBM. I never heard this phrase it's funny, I never heard this phrase until I, I worked at IBM, mm -hmm. and someone very early on, a senior executive, gave me this tip, and he was like, look, Kasim, you're very smart. Uh, you see things that like 400,000 people don't, mm -hmm. that are typically things uh, that can lead us to do better at our business and can help us. However, you're now in a corporate environment, mm. and you're going to need to learn how to eat shit. And I said, what the hell does that mean? And he's like, you will have to eat shit and make sure when you eat it, you finish your meal. <laughs> and it took me a long time to kind of figure out what the guy was saying. Yeah. But by the time I figured it out, I had been let go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting, though. I think there's this pervasive culture in corporate North America where, you know, leaders that's the wrong word for them in this context. You know, high-level kind of managers in C-suite mm -hmm. kind of go by that philosophy. And, you know, they don't want to eat shit all the time. And they want to choose who they're doing it for. Yeah. And again, in this, just to spell it out, I mean, what I mean by that phrase or what that guy meant was simply um, saying that you're wrong and admitting, <laughs> even if you're right, admitting to the person who thinks you're wrong, mm. that you're wrong to validate um, their control over you, their perception that everything's okay and that you're not calling out something that's wrong. And so when a leader, you know, steps on stage in front of his peers and his, his, his reports, um, to have to admit you know, that something is wrong mm -hmm. is very difficult uh, when it's on the spot. And so yep. it's kind of like, I don't want to deal with this right now. I'll deal with this later, or I will never deal with this. And d they're dismissive, and that's gaslighting, I guess. But Well, yeah, I mean, the gaslighting is when, you know, I deny someone's emotional experience. Oh, okay. So if, if you were to say, you know, I feel so frustrated by this, and I go, no, you don't. That's gaslighting, right? No, you don't. It's just cloudy outside today, man. Yeah. So I think there's the, there's, I think what you're speaking to sometimes, especially in large organizations or any, it could be a small organization, there's a pecking order and there's politics. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the worthwhile conversation is, are you in a healthy relationship or are you in a toxic relationship? Right, right. Uh, a toxic relationship, the way I define it, is the more you invest in that relationship, the worse it seemingly gets. Mm -hmm. And the only person who's responsible for that result is you. 
A healthy relationship is one in which multiple, all parties take responsibility for the health of that relationship, um, where the more you invest in it, the, the better it gets. Doesn't mean it's gonna be easy all the time. You might have to have really hard, vulnerable, transparent conversations, but the more you invest, the better it gets. Sometimes in our organizations, we need to be mindful of politics, but there's a fine line between it being toxic and being healthy. Right. Um, okay, so let's go back to this book. Yes. Stand up culture. S speak up culture. Speak up culture. Speak up culture, yeah. Um, what are, I guess, what, what can we expect from this and how does it relate, you know, the content of your book, how does it relate to your practice um, as a speaker, consultant, mm -hmm. uh, your, your larger body of work? So um, the book opens with the case of the Boeing 737 MAX 8. Which, ah. is, which is a documented speak-up culture issue. There were people internal to that organization. The most prominent is a senior manager by the name of Ed Pearson, who spoke up repeatedly to the right people, general manager of the plant that was building the 737 in Renton, Washington, went to the CEO, went to the FAA, went to the NTSB. Like He went and spoke, spoke to legal counsel at Boeing, spoke to all the right people hmm. saying we should shut down this production line. This is not safe. We need to investigate. Uh, and he was ignored. And it was only until um, mounting international pressure after the second plane went down, Ethiopian Airlines plane, um, that the plane was finally grounded in the in the U.S. Um, and so that's the opening uh, of really how can seemingly good people um, enable such a catastrophe to happen. Um, I speak about how speaking up is good for business, that if you want to form bonds of trust and cooperation and gain from the innovation and creative ideas of your people, you need to create an environment in which people feel that it's safe and worth it to stick their hand up, stick their neck out, and share ideas, concerns, disagreements, and even mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, I speak about uh, how we need to better define leadership. We need to better select leaders against that definition mm -hmm. and even support leaders better. Um, talk about how the two main components of a speak-up culture is encourage and reward that leaders and our cultures must encourage people to speak up and then reward them when they do, especially if it's uh, not good news, right? Bad news never gets better with, with time is a quote uh, from Admiral Bill McRaven. So it's really around, yeah, that definition of what a speak up culture is, why it's good for business um, with creativity and, and innovation, uh, and then how can we actually create it? Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, I'm already given talks on it and working with organizations to help them actually create um, a, a speak up culture. And the beauty of it is you never arrive. You're always arriving. Right. There's no like on Tuesday. Okay, great. We have a speak up culture. What's next? It's like, it takes constant work, constant maintenance. What are some of the, the kind of like highlights of that methodology or, or I guess, how would you empower XYZ company? Mm -hmm. Let's say a generic company with the ability to celebrate this and develop this speak up culture at their organization? What are things people can do? Yeah, I think first and foremost, so I've seen change in organizations occur across three interconnected levers, which are mindsets, actions, and systems. So one of the places you can start, and hopefully leaders are already there, but they already have this belief that hearing ideas, concerns, disagreements and mistakes from people is good for business, right? You know, there's a quote from the Kinky Boots song, 
uh, uh, you can change your world when you change your change your mind. I'm not talking about psychedelics. I'm talking about a transformative ex- experience mm-hmm. where you believe that hearing ideas from your people, even if it's bad news, is good for business. Now, what's really interesting is while it's effective to start with a shift in mindset or a, having that as a mindset, you can actually start in the other two. So um, you can act your way to new thinking. I've seen this from uh, a colleague of mine, Jen Marr, who does work in teaching people how to care more. I've also seen this uh, from a retired naval captain, David Marquet, who wrote a great book, Turn the Ship Around. So. Um, in both of their instances, they equip people with tools that have them back into a feeling, which is really interesting. In the case of Marquet, he wanted to create a sense of pride on board his submarine that he was captain of. Mm-hmm. And so um, I can't just say, hey, can you feel more proud to work here, please? Right. It's not a switch. That'd be excellent. Yeah. And so what he did is he was committed to creating a great culture, but he wanted to create quick wins. And so he knew that they were going to be evaluated by a random sort of mystery shopper, an auditor, an evaluator who would come on board, but wouldn't make themselves known as an evaluator or on a submarine on a submarine that's a high uh that's a tense situation now they were in sort of parked in pearl harbor and they were like there it wasn't you know out in out in the middle of the ocean um but marquet made a rule he said anytime there is a guest on board any guest every member of this crew as they see a guest because you know of your 150 person crew you know that crew If there's a guest on board, you have to stop them in their tracks, make eye contact, shake their hand, say, welcome aboard the Santa Fe, Mm -hmm. say what your name is, say what you do on on board, what your role is. And when it was the evaluator, after every single person stopped them in their tracks and said, I'm this person, this is what I do and welcome aboard the Santa Fe, they wrote on their evaluation, wow, everyone feels proud must be proud to be on board this ship because of this greeting that I pervasively received. Marquet would share the evaluation with the crew. Hey, look, the evaluator said, we're proud to be here. And they go, oh yeah, I guess we are, right? (laughs) So you can actually create a system or set of actions that can act your way, right? You can teach someone who is low on empathy or compassion. You can say, ask someone this question and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't have the mindset or predisposition to care or be compassionate, when they just get a little bit of taste of it, they're like, wow, that was powerful. I want more. The reaction to that action is what prompts or primes them even maybe for for continuing that uh, culture. Yeah. And then the last piece is systems or culture. I call it pickle brine theory. So you and I can take the best award-winning cucumber in the world and put it in some awful pickle brine, and we just made an awful pickle. Similarly, we can take a mediocre, or maybe even not that great of a cucumber, put it in some excellent brine, and we have a great pickle. Meaning the environment that we're in impacts our behavior and impacts our results, impacts people more. And so often we blame the person without examining the brine that that person is in. Yeah, it's something we're thinking about a lot here. This is something that we do, right, at Startwell is we provide this new context. When teams come to Startwell for a collaboration session mm-hmm. or whatever the purpose is, right? Because we're we've moved from co-working in 2017 into more of a on-demand meeting space function. But then the meeting spaces themselves, like I showed you a couple before we jumped on the mic, mm-hmm. will range from boardroom setup where people are, you know, essentially looking at each other around the table to have a conversation. And then, you know, maybe with the screen to dial in other remote people mm-hmm. uh, to something more loungy where they're very comfortable sitting on couches, 
having different kind of conversation, occasional conversation, and then mixed function where people are socializing, standing up, sitting. It's all different really um, formats for, for arranging their bodies. <laughs> and that's an interesting thing. But but what we, uh, what we find is that the context we offer in kind of enabling teams to meet, even if they have a regular office and they're coming for an offsite here mm-hmm. or meeting a client here, it changes that dynamic just by nature of being a different environment. Yep. An environment that is obviously hospitable. Like when you walked in, you get welcomed, you get offered tea or coffee. Yep. Whether that tea was made by a robot or the coffee was made by a barista, <laughs> right? And you feel automatically like you're, you're, you're made comfortable and, uh, and you could just be. But this is the this is the impact of design thinking in space, like designing a meeting, whether virtual or in person, designing an agenda, designing anything with intent. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean the intent will always come across, but it's worth the effort. Um, so totally. Um, okay, so let's talk about when this book is coming out. Yep. And also the kind of work that you want to be doing mm-hmm. in 2023. Yeah, and beyond. And beyond. <laughs> Uh, the book will come out in October. October 3rd, 2023 is the current release date subject to change, um, but that's the current schedule. Uh, we've done the second draft of the manuscript, so we're almost done. And where is it going to be released? Is This is a printed book? Yeah, it'll be... Bookstores. Print. Yeah, bookstores. It'll be... Amazon. Uh, Amazon. It'll be online. It'll be physically in book. It'll be audiobook. It'll be ebook as well. So. Oh, who's doing the audiobook? Uh, start well. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the voice. Yeah, uh, but I'm I'm going to be doing the book. Okay. Yeah, nice. I've been told I have a great face for radio, so this is this makes Ouch. video very hard for me. Ouch. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll be doing the audio, and yeah, I mean, uh, love to do talks on it, do coaching and work with organizations on it, and also, you know, I'm committed to building a business that doesn't have to have me on planes all the time because I have mm-hmm. a young family, and so we're also exploring online education, um, other other things that we can create that do value in the world without us having to show up and be there all the time because uh, we're a small and mighty team. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I think, you know, far too often we're, we're kind of, there's this like cultural backlash against saying that you want to just kind of like turn off parts of the world in terms of your IRL interactions with it for work. Yeah. Um, but... If you really think of like honing your tools for communicating and educating people as digital tools mm-hmm. and expanding their reach because of that, the turning effect is much larger. Yeah. Yeah. So you plan on impacting more people beneficially next year. That's the hope. And yeah, I mean, my number, my most important job is a dad. I mean, that's my number one job. And so it's hard when I. Try wow. telling that to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, we work, we work hard at that. Um, but you know, I do travel a lot. It goes in, in fits and spurts, but you know, I, I, I want to be home more than being, uh, you know, on, on the road all the time. And oh, so it's the most fulfilling thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I, it I absolutely work, love it. But it's, it's like my daughter is, is four and a half mm-hmm. and she is the most awesome person to hang out with ever. Mm. We just have so much fun. Nice. And it's kind of like, it always reminds me, it's a constant reminder. I think as a parent, I have a different perspective than I used to have before being a parent on also what uh, work should enable, you know, in terms of your emotive response to it. Yeah. Work is, is really, it should be the same as play. 
Mm. And I don't mean play for the sake of play, but mm. in terms of how people come together to be creatively inspired to solve problems, uh, obviously there's, there's like repeat process and dearth and like boring stuff, but uh, it should be fun and people should enjoy being together. Yeah. And this is why I call it work-life integration or harmony as well, because our work impacts our life and our life impacts our work. I mean, it's, it's our work life. Um, and so if we have a bad day at work, we're bringing that home, especially if we're working from home. From home. Yeah. It's already there. People yeah. come home to it. Yeah. Which is a crazy thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm really excited to uh, read this book when it comes out. Thanks. Me to too. To further involve you in our programming for the Gathering series. Thank you very much. And thanks for joining me in the studio today. Great. Great to be with you. Right on, man. Cheers.